0: I love the energy. I love the produce. I love the seasons. I love the fact that I still feel as excited being in a kitchen or being in the restaurants or actually doing a great service as I did the first time I stepped into a kitchen when I was 14 and I found my home and I found what I've called for many years my stainless steel asylum. This is the
1: Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. When the first lockdown shook the foundations of the industry, most went into fighter mode. Some, in the face of fear, sought comfort in humour to challenge dark times looming over us. And then there was Digger. The affable and talented award-winning chef, Scott Pickett, owner of Matilda, Estelle, Lupo, Pastor, and more recently, in fact, during the pandemic, Longrain, Melbourne. Digger, as many call him, went rogue, with a series of hilarious videos capturing the attention of Australia's food community. Digger, Scott, how did that all start?
0: Uh, well, Huck, that's a long story actually. Digger's a nickname I picked up in London in 1999 when I was at the Square and uh, the head chef under Phil Howard, Rob Weston, had spent a bit of time in Australia and there was myself, there was Brett Graham that's now at the Ledbury, and another Scott, a Kiwi boy, and every time, um, you know, the guys had like i say, sort of Aussie, then me and Brett would respond. And if they said Scott, then me and Scott would respond. So then one day, uh, Rob just cracked the shits and said, you know what, you're fucking Digger, you're Dingo, and you, you're just a fucking Kiwi anyway. So we all got our nicknames <laughs> like that really. And then, uh, you know, the digger is um, kind of known as amongst those core group of boys and over years and, and guys that have known me for a long time, kind of became my sort of alter ego to get me through those tough times. And when I'm being an absolute wild man, then the digger comes out. So it's a kind of running joke internally. And I'm probably not as wild in that person anymore, but I was definitely in my sort of 20s and early 30s. So now I try and park him, but it's kind of like another persona that comes out. Yeah.
1: Well, you have been pretty wild during these times with some pretty amazingly hilarious and inspiring videos um, in some pretty tough times. Tell, tell us a bit about, you know, bringing Digger to the fore in these circumstances.
0: Well, really, it was something that was just completely on the cuff. So the rule is we do one take, there's no more than that. And then the first morning when we sort of flipped and went to takeaway, uh, you know, we were kind of set up quite early on the Thursday or the Friday, and we said, okay, they said, right, they kind of call me Chefo now a little bit, you know, You know, the Aussies just add an O onto everything, so it's Chef Chefo. So they said, Chefo, you know, if, let's do a funny video, you know, you can post on Instagram and just tell us about the menu tonight. And so I was in my office and I don't know what I did first, but then I just grabbed the headband or I said something and I said, you know what, this situation is absolutely fucked. I don't want to be doing a nice video, this, this, this. I want it to be real and me, you know, let's just go rogue. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, fuck it, you know, dig or go rogue. And they're like, what? So I'm like, you know, just start filming. And then I just let all my angst, my anger, my fear, everything out into this first video And then I must have got two or three hundred messages from, you know, mates and friends and followers and stuff and and guys and girls in the industry that day. And I was like, you know what, look, I'm just going to do this for lockdown. So then it kind of got me thinking about other stuff. And it kind of got me through in a sense because, you know, we were doing takeaway and knocking it out and the world was coming to end at that stage and everything. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to have some fun with this and just take the piss completely and just go against the brand and against everything. Because at that stage, you know, and it still could happen, there was a chance that I was, you um, you know, just kind of facing losing everything. So I was like yeah, fuck it, I'm just going to say something and just have a laugh and just sort of look for some humour in the situation because everywhere you were turning and reading, it was just, you know, scary and getting me down, all that kind of stuff. I said, I need to flip my mentality here and, you know, just kind of inspire some people and just have a bit of a crack and that's kind of where it happened, yeah. Yeah.
1: How are you feeling at the moment? You know, you had that first lockdown, which, you know, put everything <laughs> potentially in jeopardy and then you got to open up again and now you're faced with another lockdown. How, how, how are you feeling about that?
0: It's 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 different to the first one. Uh, we're more prepared because we've been through it, which is great from a business perspective with an online ordering sort of perspective. The back end, everything's up and the team knows, you know, we kind of flip from a la carte to functions and assist in full container kind of thing. But it's probably scarier. It's only been a week now, but sales are nothing what they were the first time around. and we've been having conversations about that internally. and and I think that's a you know there's a sort of multitude of reasons why that is. It, at the start, I think it was new, it was fun, it was something different. it was exciting, it was a great opportunity. We'd never done it before. And then the locals in Northgate for Estelle and in South Yarra really really got behind us and then and it was kind of wonderful. This time it's a lot harder because the sales aren't as much even in the first week and I think the sort of economic impact of where people are now personally and financially three or four months into this thing is really starting to actually take its toll. So, you know, we've been really lucky that, we've kind of like we've started Provador with Shane um, that's launched that sort of, you know, maybe two months ago. And so where we're losing sales for the takeaway, we've picked up with Provador with the boxes. So I think people in Victoria are even more afraid to leave the house and get out. The reality is really hitting with this one a lot more.
1: Moments earlier, you sort of said um, that you you thought you'd just go off brand and go rogue with Digger and it was the time to do that. What was it like though, creating a takeaway model? Your food is not Takeaway food, it's um, it's a lot of technique involved and a lot of time. What 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 did it take to create a menu that is for at home?
0: Really, what we wanted to do is I didn't want to try to recreate that restaurant experience. We couldn't afford the labour, the job keeper, the time, the effort, and all that kind of stuff. So I said, let's cook dishes that we would never really cook in the restaurant. Yeah, let's just cook. Yeah, let's just enjoy it. Let's do things that aren't on brand as much that you might not come to Estel for. and we might not normally do, and let's just open the repertoire and the books and just, you know, cook off the fly. So that's why we were writing a menu every day, really, from what was in the fridge or what was around or kind of speaking to suppliers about, you know, stock they needed to move or big orders they had or if we could get some discounts or save some money or or just kind of move some of their product. And we still wanted to make it beautiful and yummy and tasty, but like we did a truffle chicken parma and we sold 250 on a Saturday night. Wow. Now, we'd never do that in the Estelle or Matilda, but it was just, uh, you know, me and us doing a truffle chicken parma, they're like, what the fuck's that? I'm like, <laughs> well, let's just make beautiful, simple, uh, comfy food that people can enjoy, and they don't have to do anything at home. And, 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 again, stepping outside of our boundaries and breaking the shackles, which is what, you know, there's sort of lots of opportunity coming out of this phase, and it's scary, and... And there is fear and it is different and nobody really knows. But I've always been a bit of a rule breaker and now we can break them even more, you know. And, and so that's kind of fun, you know.
1: Did the impact of the pandemic and the lockdown affect uh, your venues differently? Because you have multiple venues servicing different sort of… Sections of Melbourne.
0: Yeah, so what we did, so with Lupo, the original St. Crispin site in Smith Street, there was only a core team or 10 or 12 with that. And really, we made sort of financial decisions as to what we could do with JobKeeper, what we could actually cope with, how we could switch to the hungry, hungry back end, the website, the online, the ordering, all that kind of stuff. So that one we absorbed those, those stuff in the other venues. And Matilda and Estelle ran uh for the first Lockdown, uh, Pastore at Chadston closed, the deli at the airport, obviously there's no traffic that was sort of pulled straight away. Um, This time around, we've gone just to Estelle. Just for us, I mean, whilst the JobKeeper is a great initiative and it's it's been a help, that's for sure. Well, I've only got out of 40 chefs in the business, only eight of them qualify for JobKeeper. So you know that's put an enormous amount of pressure on us and on the staff members and where they are. I mean, I've got a couple of French guys that have been with me for five years. They've applied for their permanent sort of residency. They've been paying tax in this country. They're, they're being, you know, they pay their sponsorship, the money. They get nothing. So there's this sense of obligation that I have to, you know, to students, to travellers, to the young chefs coming through, the young cooks to say, well, we can't give you a full-time job, but I can give you 10, 15, 20, 30 hours casual. And the only reason that we really sat open the first time was to keep the wheels turning so that we could, you know, pay suppliers, you know, and just pay staff and to feed people. And really that's been being the biggest thing. We sat down as a team and we said the pie's this big and that's what's left. Uh, how are we going to share it? And every single team member said, Chef, Look, we'll just share it. Look, we'll all take a hit. We'll all sort of have a haircut. You know, we had Italian guys. There were three or four guys that have resigned at Matilda that were due to finish up around that and return home, an Italian guy, a Canadian and a Norwegian, and they were too shit scared to actually travel, uh, to go home. They couldn't afford an airfare. They were trapped. And I'm like, well, like I can't just leave you stranded, so let's just work out exactly what everybody needs to survive through this as a team. And then let's just share the, you know, just share what, you know, the income is because you can't, I personally, yeah, just couldn't sleep at night if I was going to have guys that have been with me five years or five months or five weeks and then just say, look, there's nothing there, you know, because there's nothing from the government and we can't afford you. So we all took a massive hit and, and, you know, we just shared it as a team, you know, which has been great to really see the, you know, the human side of this and how people have banded together and helped to support each other, um, you know, as cooks and as people has been really, really beautiful experience.
1: You've got so many people working for you and there's that sense of obligation to look after everyone and your energy has been inspiring to everyone else in the industry. But What's been the impact on you personally during this time?
0: Uh, (laughs) I don't know if we've got long enough to go through that arc, actually. Um Lots of sleepless nights. Look, I've always taken on a huge workload. I've got a manic brain. I've never really slept much. I've got OCD. I've got all those wonderful qualities that make me a great cook that so many cooks possess. Where they, you know, where they're obsessive and wild, and they have their crazy brains, um, and how it goes. And I just now, as I get a bit older and I've been around a little bit more and I see things differently, I'm like. I always try to look for the positives in even my darkest days. You know, I've suffered, you know, lots of different things over the years, whether it be through, you know, personal sort of drug abuse or alcohol abuse or all that kind of stuff, you know, that self-medicating sort of chef wildlife uh, kind of thing to where I am now, I've been sort of clean and sober for seven years. And I look at it and I go, do you know what? Either I can let this get me down and it's absolutely fucked Or I can take on that role of being the leader and being in charge and being the boss and just keeping everyone up, you know, because otherwise, you know, there's moments where I could cry. And of course, I've literally cried in the shower, sitting on the floor with hot water running on me going, what the fuck are we going to do? And I'm like, you know, keep that for myself normally, you know, and sort of behind closed doors. And then I've got, you know, fortunately, I've got an, um, an immense Uh, mental strength where i can then just turn that around whether it be three minutes five minutes 30 minutes and then just flick my brain and go right this is what we need to do and then let's and then let's just fucking get on with it you know
1: you've overcome some pretty amazing adversities in your life and you sort of talked about a few of them then What, what what advice would you give to people that you know obviously mental health is a real issue at the moment in the industry. Um, what advice would you give to some young people in the in the industry that would be quite disillusioned at the moment?
0: Yeah, talk to people. Yeah, you know, just reach out. I've been through those days in my life, and I and I still have the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows. And I drank heavily, I partied heavily. The digger was a hard, wild, great cook, great man that, you know, just went hard. And I could party all night and be back in the kitchen in London at seven o'clock in the morning and still be the first ready for service, the first on plus, you know, and just go hard and wild. And I've lived that, and I've seen that in so many guys and girls in the kitchen. But I think for me, when I actually a- accepted that I had a problem. And that I needed help, you know, which is a hugely humbling experience when you look internally to that because, you know, that's, you know, because chefs aren't trained to ask for help, right? That's your section. That's your job. Just do the fucking job, right? And if you can't do it, then that's it. So it's it's not in our nature or, look, it wasn't in the 90s when I was training and coming through really and the early noughties like to reach out for like to people. It goes against that you know whether it's that alpha male whether it's that ego thing whether whatever it is ask for help and reach out and talk and then once i did that and i you know when i put my hand up and i said actually i can't fucking deal with this by myself like i've tried all my life and i've just drowned my sorrows my hard nights my ups and downs in a pint of beer or 10 of them or bourbon or you know coke or fuck whatever it was you know to the point where i was like well i i just can't grapple this and to do that personally just break down all these layers now where I just stripped everything back and I've just been working on my personal development and who I am but then also now that I'm a few years into that into how I can help other people and sometimes it's just a phone call or it's a message or, or just reaching out or just saying look it's okay like and I say to guys I I've, I've got guys in my in in my team in the business like everyone that suffer from mental health and I make a big point to say look go and see a doctor ask somebody like if you cut your hand, you go and see a doctor. If there's a if there's a scar somewhere deep inside your brain, that could be through childhood or just ingrained in you, or it's just you know your wires aren't sort of crossed. Then why grow too fearful to go to a therapist? Like I went to rehab for two months, you know, and and worked on myself, and I was really really honest with myself on where my strengths and sort of weaknesses are personally and professionally, and then just talk about it. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong to reaching out because there's so many people out there that that are going through it, whether it's that addictive nature, you know, whether it's a mental health issue that they they're, they're, they need to deal with, and how we can work on that and support people is something that's you know that should really be paramount.
1: Do you think that corner that you turned, you know, a few years ago has put you in good stead for the circumstances that we're in now with your businesses?
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, I always thought that I. Like, I've always been kind of an overachiever, and I kind of thought that I was that, I, that I'd been operating at my full potential. And for me personally, I, I wish I could be that guy that could have one or two beers and then go home and switch off, you know, but I never was. So now I think going through that. And it's like it gives me this inner strength in a sense. It's like, well, if I can conquer my innermost demons, and they're still there and I still have to work on them sometimes, but if I can somehow manage those or control those, it kind of gives me, and this isn't necessarily a great thing, a sense of invincibility, like in a sense, that if I can uh, work hard and I can focus on what we do and I can try to make the best decisions in any situation, then things like are actually going to be okay. Now, it doesn't always work out like that and sometimes, you know, I still make loads of mistakes and I will until the day that I die, I'm sure. But if I learn from those and if I work on these things and I try my best and, I mean, it was probably the start when the first one really hit that I actually thought, you know what, fuck, I could lose everything. I mean, we mortgaged our house to finish Matilda, you know, to go to the bank to get enough done and actually sat there and I thought, you know what, this could actually be it and it's completely out of my control. There is nothing that I could possibly do, but I'm like, right, you know what? I will work as hard as I can and give it an absolute crack to see, you know, to ensure that I have the best opportunity to not go down like everyone in this industry at the moment now too, where they're all suffering and hurting and bleeding. And if that's not good enough right now, then I know that it's not my personal failure, that it's just, right, that it's circumstances in a global pandemic that are out of my control. But at least I wouldn't die wondering and I've had a great crack. Now, if that gets us through this, then that's awesome and that's great. But if it doesn't, then I've then I've already accepted that there's nothing more that I can do, Huck, and that it is what it is and that I'll start again.
1: Your influence is legendary in the Melbourne culinary landscape. Um, what is it that you love about the industry?
0: I love the energy. I love the produce. I love the seasons. I love the fact that, I still feel as excited being in a kitchen or being in the restaurants or actually doing a great service as I did the first time I stepped into a kitchen when I was 14 and I found my home and I found what I've called for many years, my stainless steel asylum. I mean, in those days, there wasn't many open kitchens, you know, you were hidden behind the back and like a lot of young fuck-ups or crazy people, I felt at home. The first time, I'll never forget the first time I stepped in a kitchen, I was like, wow, it's like I've found my place in the world, and that I'm lucky that I, that I still don't go to work every day. I actually just like I actually just wake up and live my life. And now they happen to be running the restaurants and in the restaurants, and I've had dreams. You know, this is my 31st year in the kitchen. I'm 45 at Christmas. You know, I've done 30. I've done 30 Christmases in which I've worked 26 out of 30. You know, Christmas days and in there, and I'm still as excited today as I was when I first stepped in and i tap into the you, you know into that energy into that feeling that aura you know that sort of adrenaline i suppose i'm an adrenaline junkie completely of being in a kitchen of being in a service of being under pressure and knowing that i've got to be set for service by 5:30 and then it's first table at 6 and I, and I still have a cigarette at 5 to 6 every day and and then we go in and just smash out a great service and try our best every single day
1: Loyalty is a thread sort of woven through the industry, whether in kitchens or connections with producers or even from customers. Yeah. How important has loyalty been during the pandemic?
0: It's been really paramount. I mean, you know, not just the senior staff that have gone above and beyond, but every single staff member has gone above and beyond to help and to support, you know, myself, my family, the business, you know, the restaurants that they love, you know, the suppliers that you know, every week we've sat down during the global pandemic and we've said, OK, right, there's, you know, there's X amount of dollars left and that goes on wages and, and that bit's tucked away for the landlord. And then what's left? It's not about profit now. It's about survival and saying, OK, right, there's 10 grand left this week. And I need to try to feed, you know, 100 suppliers or 50 suppliers and just being in contact with them and saying, okay, look, I owe you a couple of grand and I'll give you 250 bucks a week. And, you know, ones that are screaming a bit more or they need more because other people, um, you know, haven't been in the position to do that. I'm like, I can't give it to all the big guys or everyone right now, but we'll just share the pie and just take this and just work with whatever we can. You know, we're just balancing all that you know, with the JobKeeper payments, you know, ensuring that everyone's doing the right amount of hours, that they're all covered and then still getting the job done has been unbelievable. So, you know, there's a couple that haven't responded very well and and I accept that, you know, they're under an extreme amount of financial pressure themselves and where things are. But on a whole, 99% have been, yeah, great, just thank you. And I'm like, you don't have to thank me, I'm just trying my best because, you, you know, I've got fish guys and veg guys and, you know, butchers now that I've been using since... I first got back to London uh, uh, from London in 2003, you know, that I've been with for 17 years, you know, that have helped me out in the good times and the bad times and that kind of thing. Like, you know, let's just, you know, fucking work together and then hopefully we can pull through and save as many jobs and as many farmers and as many suppliers and as many small businesses as we can, you know.
1: You um, are renowned for taking on many projects and you... You are in control of many restaurants at the moment, but you also did one of the crazy things—like um, get involved with a new restaurant during the pandemic. Um, legendary, <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 legendary. Yeah, uh, rogue. <laughs>
1: um Thai restaurant Long Grain. Um, would, can you tell us yep. a bit about that?
0: Yeah, well, really, you know, when I thought about things, and I'm and I'm trying to look further down the road. You know, and obviously there's some been big hurdles in Victoria especially like the last couple of months. Um, is that I heard about Long rain and I've loved the restaurant for fifteen years. It's an iconic restaurant, it's a great space, it's got a great kitchen team there, there's great food. And I'm like actually I don't want this to be a casualty of of COVID. You know, I was upset. So I called John Van Handel and and I gave him my sort of, you know, like my sob story as in, like, I'm really sorry to hear that it is and it was true and this was going and we got chatting and I just wanted to reach out to him because I've known him many years as well too. And then we kind of got chatting and, and I said, well, actually, you know, for, and what are you doing with it? What's going on? And he said, look, you know, and I'm at a different stage of my life. He wants to spend a bit more time in bar and he's 72 now. He's there. And I said, well, look, I'd love to have a crack. I'd like to see it survive. And and I'd love to take it on. And he said, what, do you want to change it? What do you want to do? And I said, no, no, no. It's been a great restaurant for 15 years. I don't want to change anything. It's a wonderful brand. You know, the head chef Arte has been there seven years. You know, the restaurant manager and assistant manager have been there six and seven. You know, the operations manager, Tash, has been there 15. I'm like, if I can somehow turn this as a great opportunity into actually keeping people's jobs and keeping it going as a legacy that's still there in 15 years' time, then surely that's a positive, you know, that could come out of that. So, you know, we kind of chatted for a month or two. And John's been a great support and, you know, and the restaurant's going to live on. And it's something new for me to, to, look, I've got a good understanding of Asian food and of Thai flavours, but the kitchen team is sort of 80% Thai. Now, I don't have to teach these guys um, like actually how to cook, but I can give them inspiration. I can mentor them. I can look at at how they can maybe plate things a bit differently or some different techniques. They understand the flavours. They understand all the balance. I can just guide them and sort of direct them. And I suppose this was this was my internal search, you know, you know, during this COVID period, which is still going on, of course, as to where do I want, you know, as to where do I want sort of my life to be in, like, in five years' time, I'm 50. And as much as I loved digging going rogue and I was in the kitchen from 7 in the morning to midnight for 86 days straight, like my back hurt for the first time in my career, my legs ate. I was like, fuck, I'm not 23 anymore. I can't do this anymore like this. You know, what can I do? And do I just want to have one restaurant or I'm halfway down to having a group or there already is a group? You know, where do I see the future for myself as a person? What are my strengths now? And what can I continue to contribute to the industry and to have a a sort of good business? And I thought, well, actually, maybe it is – You know, spending my day sort of running the business and checking in with everyone and doing everything, but still like, you know, five or six nights a week I do a service. I'm like, well, is that possible with this? Is this possible with growth? And I thought, yeah, well, actually it is because I don't want to be 50, 55 or 60 chained to the stoves that if I'm not here operating the restaurant that it's not actually running. And that was, you know, that was probably a dream I'd had since I was a boy. You know, because that's how things were in, you know, I started in the kitchen in 1989, right? So that's how things were in the 80s and in the 90s. You didn't move away. You didn't become a restaurateur. You weren't an operator. You were a cook. And you weren't even a chef in those days. And that was it. But times have changed. And I've got to accept as much as it hurts me, you know, when I put the jacket on that I'm not going to spend 100% of my time in the kitchen with the boys anytime. But if I, I still spend 50 or 60 or 70, then that's okay. And then that acceptance then allowed me to say, well, I want to do another venture or maybe five more or ten more or no more. I don't know yet. And that's kind of where that long grain kind of thing came from.
1: This transformation that's ongoing with you personally at the moment within the industry, what else is there? Do you think your restaurants that you have, do you think they will change moving forward?
0: Yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. I think, you know, some great things to come out of this is really reevaluating your business model. And even though, you know, I've got a pretty healthy ego, like most good cooks, it's not necessarily when you get to know me exactly how it is or it might be perceived, whether a goes rogue or me, you know, giving a little bit of fucking, you know, Aussie larriquism into a sort of moment or a TV gig or to an interview or anything like that. It's actually how can we, like there were things, like I said, I never would have done a truffle chicken palmer at a stout. But is there anything wrong with that? It might not be on the menu all the time, but is there anything wrong with doing takeaway or doing pickup or doing Providor or looking for other streams of revenue to support the business as well too? Because it was always, oh, well, that's not what we do. Well, actually, what do we do? We feed people, right? We're taking it back to grassroots. We cook for people. Yeah, that's our job is to be nice, is to be um, in the restaurants, you know, to take care of people. So, you know, can we look at the food getting, you know, simpler? and cleaner and running smaller menus and turning it over and doing different specials and not just cooking to a brief or to what I think it might be or what the head chefs might be and actually then not battling internally that that it's not complex enough or that it's not different enough or it's not modern enough. Well, ultimately, when you strip everything back, which is what this pandemic's done, is we're here just to cook for people. And that's our job. So actually, you know getting rid of the egos and the ideas and the whole things, and still doing whatever you do at a really, really high standard and enjoying it and making a bit of money along the way, that for me is the magic blend.
1: Some people on this series have sort of mentioned that um, as sad as it may sound, that the pandemic may be a great corrector and filter out some of the people who don't operate properly. and how do, how do you see that and and the future of restaurants in Australia?
0: I think especially in Victoria that it could be a good thing. As brutal as that sounds, it will weed out, you know, the people that don't operate, you know, sort of at the right level, that don't put as much in, that, you know, there's there's too many restaurants, you know, there's too much choice, you know, the prices aren't really reflective of the cost of business these days and there's a skilled labour shortage. So if you lose 30%, and then it corrects itself, well, then maybe people will understand the costs associated with with actually running a restaurant, with what they should really pay for food, and that then, you know, that we can have, you know, more staff or better staff, and then on the flip side, you look down as to what the training programs are and then what the next, you know, the next generation of cooks can actually get out of the industry, because they want a lot more work-life balance now. The days of, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, sort of 100-hour weeks are gone. You know, what's the new business model where you're compliant, where someone's doing a forty hour week, where you can still achieve great food? Well, if that needs to be passed on to the consumer, then you know, then that's just you know, that's just life. You know, I feel like we're one of the only industries that don't necessarily charge what we should charge, you know. If I if I if I call out a plumber because the sink's fucked and it's a two hundred dollar call out fee and it's seventy five bucks an hour to fix the drain and do this, I might not necessarily like it. But I have to do it and I accept it. And I think other industries have done really, really well where, you know, they haven't sort of undercut each other and they've said, well, you know, actually this is what that state costs. And my food cost might be 28%, but my own costs are still massive now with rent and, and you know, wages and gas bills and power bills and life fuel bills. But it's not just about a three times multiple. Now to actually get that on the plate and have a sustainable sort of long-term business Um, it's three and a half times multiple. So like it might cost me $15, uh, but it's, you know, times three at 45, it's plus GST and it's plus like a little bit more for the cost of, you know, doing business and it's a $53 stake. And that's actually what it costs. You know, rather than trying to do it at 45 and then you take your GST out and it's at $40.50 and you're like, well, really, I'm not hitting my margins. Why are they so slim? So hopefully this corrector will actually be a good opportunity for us to actually say, well, this is what we need to do to survive. And, you know, the whole industry, in a sense, was broken beforehand. There's been massive changes, which I'm a big, you know, big supporter of and they need to be uh, changed and done, you know. And not just from a generational shift, but from a, a sustainability, um, you know, sort of aspect for, you know, the restaurateur, for banks, for the people that rely on you, for the suppliers, for all those kind of things to say, well, it costs what it costs. And we're not being greedy, but we want to, you know, but we want to look after everyone. And then hopefully, you know, there's a little bit less sort of supply, you know, the demand will be higher. It's easier to have more professional operations because you've got a high level of staff coming through and then you look at the training and then what the longevity is of the industry itself.
1: You know, early on in the pandemic, I think we had contact with each other and you said that you were just pushing on, but it's an absolute bloodbath um, in regards to dealing with everything. Um, but you approached it with some incredible positivity and gave sort of positive um, feelings to everyone else in the industry with Digger Goes Rogue. Um, what's, what, what are the positives to come out of this, do you think, for you and also the industry?
0: I think just re-evaluating and just looking at your business model at, at where you do things well, where you don't do things well, where you get sort of efficiencies in the business, all the fluff that we might have got caught up in our own mind or our own brain beforehand. You kind of, you know, you kind of looking at things, you know, with a spotlight on, you know, not just the food, but on different areas of the business, on the people in the business, on the people that have you know, that have that have helped you, that have sort of been there along the way too, um, and then what the future might be. And again, there's no rules anymore now. Like it actually doesn't matter what you do to a degree, whether it's just mm-hmm. restaurant. Or if it is takeaway, or if it is pickup, or if it's Providor, or if there's other opportunities out there to drive some revenue, whether it be live cooking classes, whether it be demos, any of that kind of stuff, you know, online stuff, that engagement of how you can actually, you know, change what you, you did before because we were very, very structured in a sense. And now we can't be. And we haven't been through anything like this in my lifetime. I mean, this is like, like I, like I say to the team, it's like going to war, but we can't see the enemy. Right, it's just there. We don't know what it is. There's no one to really blame. So it's like I feel like the stories that I heard from my grandparents about the First World War, the Second World War, or the Depression, you know, how that goes through. To now we value a carrot even more than I ever have. It's like, well, we're braising beef cheeks in there. And then normally we go, okay, that's the cheek and that's the mirepoix and that's the garnish. I'm like, well, why are we throwing carrots in the bin? Yeah, why are we throwing a slow-cooked carrot that's been cooked at 80 degrees overnight that's full of juice and flavour because it doesn't look pretty on the plate? Yeah, but it's fucking delicious. And then do we need to then throw that out and then get other vegetables and then spend that time and that labour? Or is there a way that inside ourselves that we can accept the fact that, you know, that garnish, you know, could actually go into a beautiful pole, uh, you know, plate of food? And the waste and the trim and where we look at things and it's all over shape. Like, you know, the fish has to be that shape or the beef has to be that shape or it's going to be trimmed like this. Like, all that wastage that's going on, too. So, how we can reevaluate that and still make it look pretty, you know, but if we cook great flavors and, and we're great cooks and it's seasoned well, then that should become secondary to a point, too. It should be about actually what's put in front of me and the whole ethos behind that that we sort of start to develop now as we reevaluate the business practices.
1: You're in one week into this second lockdown and, you know, potentially open up again in five weeks and it'll be spring. What are you looking forward to that time if all things go to plan?
0: I mean, part of me would love to keep fighting and battling through the next five or six weeks. The other part of me thinks, do you know what, as horrific as a full lockdown would be, maybe that's what we need to just actually stamp it out and just put everything on hold for four weeks and just actually bunker down. I'm still... trying to work out whether that's a good way to view it whether it's not i don't know but coming out of this i'm actually really positive and hopeful that we're going to have a great christmas you know that we should have in the restaurants and not just mine but the whole industry it's going to be this pent-up demand to get out to spend time with friends with family with business associates that we might actually have you know one of the best christmases that we've had in many 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 years and so like i'm looking forward to actually going okay so we know it's a like an absolute shit fight now for a month or two months or three months but what's the next stage how do we get ready for Christmas you know how are we looking at our function packs on our offerings on our price points on our menus and all that kind of stuff from a business perspective before we're already working on spring menus and being in a bowser winter down here in Victoria too it's colder stuff you know just thinking about the green yeah really spring to me is just a green color I look at like it at seasons in colours and then how that can translate to the food and to the plate and it'll be like a rebirth and a new beginning. Once we're into spring and we're coming out and people loud out a little bit more and the trees start to, you know, change colour and the little shoots start to go there, it's kind of coming out of those doldrums of a big sort of, you know, crazy dark winter into that sort of new lease on life.
1: Well, Scott. Thanks for going rogue at the beginning of this pandemic because you certainly helped a lot of people out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does, sound, yeah, it does sound like a more calm um, digger um, than we saw at the beginning of the, the pandemic. But, um, mate, it's been a bloody joy to talk to you as always. Um, keep in touch and um, hopefully you open the doors again in spring.
0: Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks very much, Huck. And I love this podcast. Uh, I think it's been great. I've been listening to everyone across the sort of, you know, the months that it's been going now, and I think it's great just to share all the stories and the hardships and the true reality that, you know, that the whole industry is going through and not just, you know, the chefs and the cooks and and the operators, but the suppliers and, and the forgotten little people, you know. They're the ones that are paramount to keeping us going. Whether it's a little duck supplier or a little veggie grower, these people that put their heart and soul into it. And now they've got to change things as well too. So hopefully we all get through the other side and uh, you know we have a great spring.
1: Thanks, mate. You're a legend. Talk soon. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huxtep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast, or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.